Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. Now, normally, this would be the part where Joel says, every episode we give you a different voice from history, or Joel might say, you're listening to a special revived conversation. Today, you are listening to an episode that we would call a revived conversation. However, it's actually going to just be me uh, running it today, just Troy on this episode. Joel is not able to make it in, do some scheduling conflicts, uh, and we're going to have to run this one solo. Now, that's actually okay. I would have loved to have Joel on this episode, but this was an episode that I actually kind of been working in the back of my head for a little while that I wanted to do. And so even though the scheduling conflicts didn't, it brought it to me faster than I expected. That's all right, because I am ready to go. Now, because of what I do, I get to work at times with old church history documents. And I'm talking the really old stuff. And I've gotten to reread and go through some of these, some of them for the first time recently, and then just some of them for the first time in a long time. And these are really, really cool things. Now, you may have just heard that and heard old church history documents. You saw that this doesn't have Joel. You you hear this isn't maybe a normal episode of Revive Thoughts. And if this is your first episode listening, I encourage you, listen, enjoy this episode. Uh, But this episode is very different than the way we normally do things here at Revive Thoughts. However, Stay with me because I think you're going to find that what we're going to go through today actually has some really interesting and really encouraging stuff. When I read these and when I looked through these, I was like, I cannot wait to find a way to share this with the Revive Thought audience, to share this with you guys because it's so encouraging. One of the reasons we do Revive Thoughts, one of the reasons I think Revive Thoughts has been successful, and one of the reasons that we've been getting shared and that this old church history podcast run by not a giant institution, uh, but but it's run by Joel and myself, has reached so many people. And we, we get emails and messages and tweets all the time. We love what you're doing. You've really opened up this new world to me. Is because church history is very encouraging. Uh, if you listen to a recent episode of By My Wife of Martyrs and Missionaries, she has this quote by A.W. Tozer that says, reading old bi- biographies is basically nourishment to the soul. It's a way to refresh your soul um, because we learn from these people that lived before us. And I think that has been something that so many people have been writing in. It kind of rhymes with another quote, this quote that we found very early on from David Brainerd's uh, journal. And when I read it, it's like the opening line of it by Jonathan Edwards. It says, there's two ways to teach and encourage the true religion. One is through doctrine and precept. And that's kind of like teaching theology. I say there are lots of great podcasts doing that, and they, and it's good, and they should do it. But we really see ourselves in this next part where Jonathan Edwards says, and the other is by example. And telling people, here's what a good Christian looked like. That's how Jonathan Edwards opened David Brainerd's journal and said, here's an example of it. And it actually ended up being his number one best-selling book. And in the same way, Revive Studios is saying, Revive Thoughts and Martyrs and Missionaries and the work we're doing, we're going to be trying to really get you to see, here are the examples of Christians living that stuff out. And in doing that, I got to interact with some really old documents. Now, I knew about some of these documents before. Uh, One of them, Second Clement, I've known about since the very beginning of our show. One One of the first questions when we started Revive Thoughts was, what kind of sermons should we do? And originally, it wasn't really, it was really never been methodical how we picked them. And one of the things I thought was like, well, what's the oldest sermon outside the Bible? We there's arguments that the book of Hebrews, you know, Sermon on the Mount, stuff like that's obviously older. Uh, But the oldest sermon outside the Bible. And the answer to that is 
probably Second Clement. Now, it's called Second Clement by accident. Uh, it was originally thought to be a letter and then refreshed and reviewed and re-edited. People were like, this is probably a sermon. And it's preached in the year 105. And it's really cool. And at some point, we hope to have it on the show. It's not ready. Uh, it's going to take a lot. It's going to take some editing and it's going to take some work and it's going to take some work on that. We mentioned it before. But so I knew about some of these old documents. I've interacted with some of these documents. And again, I did take church history classes. But there's something really encouraging about these old documents. That I think people just kind of skip over. And it makes sense. If you're going through life, if you're at church, you're probably not, you know, your pastor's probably not like, hey, we're going to read this really old document. And that's perfectly legitimate. It's not the place or time. Yet, if you're going to seminary or going to learning church history in broad, you probably don't have time to really dig into these things. Yet, there is such good nourishment and good things in these old documents that I think we need to look at a little bit. And there's a couple reasons why. There's the two big reasons for me why is A, the first one, look at how consistent our faith has been. One of the big arguments, if you go on, you know, TikTok, you look at deconstructionists, you look at these different people who are attacking our faith all over. One of the big arguments they're going to make to you and say, well, Christianity was kind of created by Constantine. Christianity was created by these councils. Christ the Roman Catholic Church has been editing Christianity. You don't have the real Christianity. If Jesus lived, maybe he did. You don't have it, or they made it up as they went. And when you look at some of these old documents, you go, mm, you know, I really see something very consistent here that really portrays my faith as not what you're describing it as. And the second and the second thing you can learn from it too, I think it's just really encouraging and really neat as we look at it, is just what Christians were back then, what they believed in and stood up for back then, is so similar to what we believe and stand up for now. And it, it's it's just the amazing consistency and coherency of our faith across 2,000 years, and you're gonna, I think you're going to be as encouraged by it and wowed by it as I am just looking at it and going, wow, we're the same. We haven't changed that much. And yet, that little group of people that was very small would eventually take over the Roman Empire, would eventually become the number one religion in the world, would eventually change the entire world, yet they started and they look not that much different than we do today. So often we look at our church today and we look at the church you know, of Acts or those early days and we go, man, we're failing, we're failing, we're failing. And sometimes these old church history documents deeply convict me and I go, ah, I'm not living the way that I should. Sometimes I look at them though and I go, you know what? We are actually faithfully living out the same faith and we don't look that different than them. And that's actually really cool. Now, a couple disclaimers just to get them out of the way. A, uh, scholars go crazy over these documents and uh, they're going to go bananas. And if you're one of those guys who's, you know, gotten that super scholarly PhD, you might think I'm doing it all wrong. I promise you I did some research. However, you might have a different take. That's okay. But yeah, we th these documents have been back and forth. Originally, when all these documents were found or came out, they were kind of all thrown to the wayside and everyone said, oh, they're gone. Over time, scholars have gone back and gone, you know what, actually a lot of these are actually pretty authentic and we didn't really have any reason to throw them out. In fact, a lot of the anti-authorship, if, if in this, I don't want to go super scholarly, but the anti-authorship stuff is actually kind of going away. It's not as popular as it used to be. People realized if we, you know, keep doing that stuff, uh, we don't we don't hold these Bibles and these old Christian texts to nearly the same standard we hold any other religion or any other philosopher's text to, and we're being completely unfair and dismissive. And so that's kind of going away. That's good. We want that to go away. And so a lot of these documents were uh, hammered for different reasons, and now people have come around and gone, okay, you know what? These probably were written by Ignatius or Polycarp or whomever it said it was. We really didn't have a good reason to throw some of these things out. 
The second caveat, second disclaimer I want to make is some of these documents, I, I picked some very good ones. I was careful. Uh, some documents from those early days are bad. They just they just are. They say weird things and they're doing weird stuff. And you can certainly get all mixed up and turned around reading them. Not Just because a document is old or just because it was kind of out there does not mean it was good. And there's some really weird stuff. Every You know, probably one of the most famous examples, Gospel of Thomas, right? There are just some weird things out there that there's a reason they were discredited and thrown out. Usually these things are like attempts to be scripture, these, you know, fake scriptures that went out there. Those are usually what these look like. We're not really looking at any of those right now. We're looking at real Christian documents. Like I'm a Christian writing to you, not attempting to write scripture, but just writing back and forth to one another. Those kind of things, not necessarily that pseudo stuff that don't, I would not recommend getting involved in those kinds of things. Uh, we're just going to look at the stuff that was written between Christians. We're going to start with the Didache. Now, I didn't actually know it was called the Didache. I, like a fool, have been calling it the, the Didache in my head for a while. Uh, so you can make fun of me for that. But after looking it up, uh, I found out it was the Didache. And there's one segment that really stood out to me. Now, this is a really, really old document. Most people believe it was written before the first century. That means in that before hundreds time, you know, if Paul was writing, most people think he was writing and died before 70 this would have been written within about 30 years of Paul's death. John the Apostle, most people agree, he probably died around 95, maybe even 100, maybe earlier 90. But in that range, that means this document probably existed in that lifetime. This thing would have been in that era during the time of the apostles. That's really cool. Like, do you see that connection? If people are trying to say they've edited the faith, they've changed the faith, they've changed what Christians do, and they've turned it into something else— well, this document is right there around the time John is living. We're seeing it connect with those timeline of people. It's very early on, and it's just one of several we're going to look at. And this is section, it could have gone to a couple different sections. There's a bunch of sections to look at. If you haven't read the Didache, it's not scripture. None of these documents we're looking at are, but they do help us understand what Christians were thinking during that time. But this part really got to me. On the Lord's day, come together, break bread, give thanks having first confessed your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. Anyone who has a dispute with another must not join your assembly until they have been reconciled so that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For this is the sacrifice spoken of by the Lord. In every place and at every time, offer me a pure sacrifice for I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. Now don't get confused by the idea of sacrifice. They're not actually Christians doing sacrifices. They mean that time together that they're gathering. And look at what they're doing. They're getting together on the Lord's day. They're breaking bread. They're giving thanks, making sure they've confessed their sins. And if they have a dispute with one another, they're getting together and reconciling so that their time can be pure, so that God can be seen as a great king, and so that his name will be made wonderful among the nations. And I look at that and I go, wow. Like sometimes I look at the book of Acts, I see them all living together and I go, man, I feel like we're just so distant from that. I think a lot of us do. And I would love to be a part of more of that. But when I look at the Didache, written a few decades later, I see, you know what? They're doing the same things we're doing. They're getting together. They're gathering. They're breaking bread. They're giving things. Hopefully in your church, they're confessing sin. I don't know if my church is confessing sin as much. I don't know that I'm confessing sin as much as them. But it's the same, right? Like this is the same thing we see happening. And we're doing it for the same reason. And we're, we are, we sometimes I think give ourselves not enough credit that we're living like first century Christians. I know we can do better, but this is really cool. Our church sounds like theirs, doesn't it? 
And maybe you're like, well, we, you know, we sing some songs, maybe we have some donuts and coffee. Yeah, yeah, but the idea is the same, right? We're confessing, we're giving thanks, we're sacrificing, you know, we're not sacrificing, sorry, we're, we're making this time pure to God and we're, we're, we're breaking bread together uh, when we celebrate communion. I just think that's really cool. That's not the only document. In fact, one of the craziest documents that exist, I think it's just absolutely crazy, is that there was a letter written by a governor of this area. Now, this is a non-Christian governor, and he is writing to the emperor, Trajan at the time, doesn't like Christians, persecuting them. And these guys are writing about us. And Pliny's this governor, and he's, he's saying, hey, I've never dealt with Christians before. And he's writing to the emperor, and he goes, emperor, what do I do with Christians? Let me tell you what I did. Do you think what I did was good? Like, did I, did I handle these Christians the right way? The Roman Empire doesn't like Christians. And he's trying to make sure, did I do with them what I was supposed to do? You know, and I, did I make any mistakes here? But this is really interesting to me because in the middle of the letter, he says, I asked some former Christians, hey, what is it you Christians do? I interrogated them, right? I made sure, what is it they're up to? And so let me, tell, let me read the part where he says this. Others were named by the informer, declared that they were Christians at one point, but then they denied it, asserting that they had not, they weren't Christians anymore. And for years, they had not gone. One as many as 25 years had not been there. They all, they all worshipped your image. This is to the emperor. They all worshipped the image of the emperor. They all worshipped the statues of gods, and they all agreed to curse Christ. So this guy's an enemy of the, enemy of the emperor. He's interviewing apostates, people who've given up Jesus Christ. They may have went to church at one point, but they don't anymore. And so he goes, okay, so tell me about the Christians. What is it they're up to? What is it they do when they're behind closed doors? They're trying to figure Christians out. Here's what they said. They asserted, however, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsibly a hymn to Christ as if to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to do crimes, not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust even when, or when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food. So when he, this guy who persecutes Christians writes to the emperor and says, I interviewed the apostates. I interviewed the people who don't believe in Jesus anymore. They worship you. They're faithful guys. This is what they do. This is what the Christians are doing. The evil Christians, they're meeting on a day. They're singing songs. They're making oaths, committing not to sin, like theft or adultery or anything like that. They're agreeing that if somebody trusts us, we'll hold up our end of the contract. And then when they're done, they'll depart and they'll eat some food together. But nothing special, not like, you know, sacred sacrifices or the brains of squirrels or something weird. They're just, they're just eating bread. They're just eating ordinary food. And then when I told them, he says it continues. So when I told them they had to stop, they agreed to stop and they agreed not to do any political things. They agreed to stay out of politics. He even says, this guy even goes, I even tortured two slaves to make sure what they were doing was true. These slaves were called deaconesses. And yet they said, this is exactly what they were doing. He even knows that. This is a Roman governor saying that these two female slaves in their church were called deaconesses, which means that these were people who were in some form of leadership, female slaves, which were looked down upon by the Roman Empire, but the Christian church was treating them with respect. And when he tortured them, it was like, what are you guys doing? The answer was nothing. And we're, this is what we do. What you, you caught us, we get together, we sing songs to God, we give thanks, and we, we promise not to sin. That's our big deal. And then we go eat food together. 
And, he's, and one of the problems Pliny had was he goes, how do I deal with these Christians? People from every race, people from every rank, poor and rich and noblemen and, and slaves and, and, and both genders, all these people, there's no specific group. It's, they just come out of the woodworks from all sides. Christians were neither Greek nor Jew. They were neither male nor female. They were neither slave nor free man, right? They were just from everywhere. And it's so difficult fighting them because they're just so random, right? It's not like one group of people we can see with our eyes. We know, watch out for those guys. It could be anybody. It could be the rich guy. It could be the poor guy. It could be the slave. It could be the could be the free man. It could be the barbarian. It could be the woman. It could be the man. We, we don't know. These Christians don't seem to care about that kind of stuff. What do I do with that? That's amazing because that is such a testament to Christ, isn't it? That's such a testament to what we envision the church would be early on. This letter was written during the reign of Emperor Trajan. Actually, the emperor even wrote him back and said, you did a good job, good job beating those people. Um, even wrote him back, and this would have been around the year 115 or so. This is I mean, again, within 20 years of John the Apostle dying, within less than 100 years, what is it the secret of the Christians? It's that they're living, they're getting together, they're giving thanks, they're singing songs, they're calling Christ God. And that's what we do. And that's just so cool, isn't it? I don't know, do you not just feel this kinship with people from 1900 years ago and go, wow, like that, we're still doing that today. That's, that's still us. That's still what we're about. We haven't changed that much, actually. Our faith is still the same. It may look different. If we teleported someone from that church to now, they would probably see a lot of differences. But the cool thing is there was something similar they'd see too. They'd see people worshiping Jesus, singing praises to him, and giving thanks and, and confessing sins and agreeing not to do bad things. This is a testimony from the enemies of God, from the apostates that he interviewed. That is an incredible testimony to our faith, I think. There's more, though, too. We can continue going, and I think I will uh, show you another one. This is called the Apology of Aristides. Now, this is a really cool document because uh, it, it didn't. nobody really knew it existed. Jerome mentioned it. Eusebius mentioned it. Some of these early guys mentioned it existed, but they didn't find it until 1878. They found it in a library of Armenia. When they discovered it with this name, they realized, we've actually had this document all along. We just didn't know it was called this, and they were able to put it together. And it's been attested to. Everyone says it's true. And it was it's ranked right around the year 125 AD. And this guy was a philosopher in Athens, and he came to Christ. And so he was a philosopher. He's a pagan Greek philosopher. He comes to Christ. Now, he has some weird stuff in there. Like, if you go and read this, and I, I, man, I encourage go for it. But you're going to see some weird stuff. He has some things where he's like, the Egyptians are no good people, and the, and the Greeks are no good people too, which is his own people. Like, he has some weird stuff that's like really weird. But then I'm going to read to you when he talks about what Christianity is. He kind of goes through all the things. He's speaking to the king, the Caesar, at 125. He gets this audience with him as a great philosopher. And he basically tells the Caesar, hey, I've looked at all the different worldviews, Caesar. I've looked at the Egyptians. I've looked at the Babylonians. I've looked at all these different people, the barbarians too. And let me tell you, even the Jews, so the Jews are not bad, but the Christians have it right. This is why I've become a Christian. And let me read to you what he said to him in the year 125. But the Christians, O king, while they went about and made search, have found the truth. And as we learn from their writings, they have come nearer to the truth and genuine knowledge than the rest of the nations. For they know and trust in God, the creator of heaven and earth, 
and whom and from whom are all things, to whom there is no other God as companion, from whom they received commandments, which they engraved upon their minds, and observe in hope and expectation of the world which is to come. Wherefore, they do not commit adultery, nor fornication, nor do they bear false witness. They don't embezzle, and they don't give up a pledge. They don't covet what is not theirs. They honor their father and mother. They show kindness to those who are nearby. Whenever they are judges, they judge rightly. They don't worship idols made in the image of man. And whatever they would not do to others, have done to them, they would not do to others. In other food, which is consecrated idols, they do not eat it, for they are pure. Their oppressors, they try to appease by comforting them and making them friends. They do good to their enemies. And their women, O king, they treat them pure as virgins, and their daughters are meant to be modest. Their men keep themselves from unlawful unions and from anything that would be unclean and the hope of a life to come. Further, if one or another of them is a slave man or a slave woman or a child in slavery, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians anyway. And when they have done so, they call them brothers as if there's no distinction between them. They do not worship strange gods. They go their way in modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found with them. They love one another. And from widows, they don't turn them away in their esteem. They deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has, he gives to him who, do who doesn't, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes. They rejoice over him as if a brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but they call each other brothers after the Spirit of God. And whenever one of the, the poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to the ability, gives attention to him and carefully oversees his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or inflicted in the name of the Messiah, all of them will anxiously minister to his needs. And if it is possible, they will pay to set him free. If there is any among them that is poor and needy, they will spare their food for them. They will fast two or three days in order to make sure the needy have their food. They observe their commandments from their Messiah with care, living justly, soberly, as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and every hour they give thanks and praise to God for his loving kindnesses toward them and for their food and their drink that they offer thanksgiving to him. And if any righteous man among them passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another near. And when a child has been born to one of them, they give thanks to God. And if moreover it happens that that child dies in childhood, they will give thanks to God as well, as for one who passed through the world and did not have to suffer the sin of it. And further, if they see that any of them dies in his ungodliness and sins, you will not believe how, how they grieve bitterly and sorrow for the one as if he has gone on to his doom. Again, this is a, a, a testimony from a guy who was a philosopher. He went to search for truth. He found Christianity. And then he goes to the emperor, the Caesars, who had been persecuting the Christians. And he goes, I've looked at all these other things. Let me explain to you the problems with them. And let me tell you what the Christians are like and what I found in them and why I think they have the truth. In the year 125 AD, I mean, it's so close to the year of Christ, so close to the apostles. We have this philosopher giving it. And then this testimony was lost to us and then discovered in a library in Armenia. How cool is that? And just, just incredible. And they've been able to put it together. They're very sure that that really is exactly what he was saying or something very close to it. Here's another one from a, what is called, what is considered Clement of uh, a bishop in Rome. And he's talking to the church of Corinth. He's writing a letter to them. The Church of Corinth. Now, you may remember the Church of Corinth from such hits as 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, where Paul is getting onto them quite a bit. 
it seems like they got over that for a while. And then by the time the Bishop of Rome and Clement here is writing to them, they're kind of back to their old ways. And what's really cool is this letter is thought to be written. Some people say as early as the 60s, 70s. It's probably not written in the 60s, 70s. Some people try to go way out and say like 120s, 30s, 40s. Maybe a really fair scholarly estimate is that's around 95, 96. There's some persecution that Clement kind of hints at. And there's some other details that make you think this is probably when it happened. Which means this is only 30 years after Paul was there. He's going to be writing to them and basically saying things to them. And he mentions, he mentions Paul and he mentions the letter that went to Paul. And I'm going to open with this part of it because I just think it's really cool. But Clement just says right here in the, at the very end of it, first, if you ever want to look it up, first Clement 47.1 here. Uh, first, I, you're taking to your hands the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. That was... It, literally written to these people. Like when we say open your Bible to first Corinthians, you know, whatever, second Corinthians, whatever, it, like Clement's in here saying like, oh, remember that letter Paul wrote to you? You guys remember it's in your lifetime. And he says, what did he write to you in the beginning of his gospel? He warned he of a truth. He warned you spiritually in a letter concerning himself and concerning Cephas and Apollos, because even then you guys were divided and had factions. But the faction of that time has brought less sin upon you than for now. For you inclined the apostles of good repute, and you were looking for men of good reputation. But now consider, who are those that have perverted you and have diminished the glory of your famous brotherly love? Disgraceful brothers. Yes, it's disgraceful is what it is. And unworthy of the conduct which is in Christ, that it should be reported that the most firm and ancient church of the Corinthians has, on account of one or two people, made sedition against its leaders. And this report came not only to us, but also from the Gentiles who are not with us, so that they are heaping blasphemies on the name of the Lord through your folly and are causing danger to yourselves. Let us therefore remove quickly this thing that is happening and let us fall before the feet of the master and seek him with tears that he will have mercy and be reconciled to us and restore us again to the grave and pure conversation of our brotherly love. For this is a gate of righteousness opened unto life as it is written, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go to them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter there. Now, since many gates have been opened, the gate of righteousness is that which is in Christ. Happy are all that they enter in and there who keep their path straight in holiness, righteousness, quietly performing their duties. If a man is faithful, if he be mighty to expound in knowledge, if he is wise in the interpretations of words, if he is pure in his deeds, by so much more he ought to be humble. And by as much as he seems to be greater, by so much more he ought to seek to be the common advantage of all and not of just doing advantage for himself alone. It almost sounds like a letter to Paul from Paul, right? Like Clement is sitting here going, you guys remember when Paul wrote you letters and said you guys were doing bad? You're doing even worse now. At least when you divided under Apollos and Cephas, remember that? You guys were dividing under men of good repute. Now you're falling for men of bad repute. What happened to the great church of Corinth? Stand up and do better. This is written like probably three decades, at the most five or six decades after that letter. There would be people in that church who remember when that letter got there. And they're like, oh man, that hurts. That's incredible, isn't it? And look at what he's encouraging them to do. Be humble, look after each other, do well, don't be playing these games, is what Clement is saying. It's just so cool. Now, another quote from Second Clement, this seemed like a good time to put it in there. This is a sermon that, again, is probably written, could be written as early as the year 90 AD, preached somewhere in the lifetime of John the Apostle. It, apostle? Apostle. Uh, if not, probably around the year 105, some scholars try to put it out further. It's really early, though. It really should be considered early. 
Therefore, my brothers, let us struggle with all sincerity, knowing that the contest is near. Many undertake long voyages to compete for a perishable reward, yet not all are crowned, but only those that have worked hard and completed gloriously. Let us therefore compete in such a way that we may all be crowned. Let us put straight the course in front of us, the race that is imperishable. Let us sail for it in great number and compete so that we will be crowned. And we should not all be able to attain the crown. Let us at least come near to getting to it. We must be aware that he who strives in the perishable contest will be taken away and scourged and removed from the list if he is found cheating. What do you think? If anyone does anything inappropriate in the everlasting contest, what will he have to go through? For the scripture says about those who do not preserve the seal unbroken, their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they will be a spectacle to all. Another quote from the same group. Uh, same second Clement. Therefore, brothers, let us repent at length. Let us be serious about what is good. For we are all of much folly and wickedness. Let us blot out our former sins by repenting from the soul and let us be saved. Let us not become men pleasers for nor, nor will they let us desire to please only each other, but also the ones that are outside by our righteousness so that the name will not be blasphemed because of us. For the Lord also says, my name is continuously blasphemed among the Gentiles. And again, woe to him on account of whom my name is blasphemed. How is it being blasphemed? And you're not doing what I desire. For the Gentiles marvel at our words as beautiful and great when they hear the oracles of God. Afterwards, when they learn about our works and they see we are not worthy of the words we speak, they then begin to blaspheme. They say about our faith, it is fable and delusion. Wow. You know, how many times have we heard, well, I like Christians, but, you know, you guys are hypocrites. I like Christians, but look, I don't think that's always fair because we do the best and sometimes our enemies don't give us the you know time of day. But isn't it crazy that Second Clement here being preached very early on in the church and he says, man, we they, they kind of think we speak good, but they don't think our works live up to it. And then they blaspheme God because they say, oh, you don't really believe it. It's fable and delusion because if you believed it, you would live it. And you're not. That's something we can relate to today, isn't it? That's something we still struggle with, I think, today. For example, when they hear from us that God says, there are no thanks due to you if you love those that love you, but there are thanks due to you if you love your enemies and then they hate you. When they hear these things, they marvel at the excellence of the kindness. But when they see that we not only do not love them that hate us, but even that we don't even love those who love us, then they laugh at us and they scorn us and the name is blasphemed. Oof. Right? That's another quote right there. Hey, they think it's such a good idea that you love your enemies, but then they look at you and they go, you don't even love your friends. Um, they don't believe in Jesus because of that. Again, ouch, right? We can feel that pain today because we know that's something we haven't mastered yet. Yet it's something that's been common to us for a long time. Lastly, he kind of ends the sermon with this. Don't let it trouble your mind when you see the unrighteous having riches and the servants of God tied on supplies. Therefore, let us, brothers and sisters, be believing. We are battling the contest of the living God. We are ex exercised by the present life so that we may be crowned by the one to come. None of the righteous received fruit quickly, but awaits it. If God gave the reward of the righteous after a short time, we would immediately start exercising ourselves in business and we wouldn't go after godliness. We would seem to be righteous while pursuing not what is godly, but what is profitable. Because of this, divine judgment surprised the spirit that was not righteous and loaded with chains. I don't know what that quote means. That's just a random thing in there. To be the only, to the only God invisible, the Father of truth, who sent forth to us the Savior and Prince at imperishability, through whom we also received to us the truth and the heavenly life. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And what a boom, right? I mean, how many people still today wrestle with, hey, why are the you know why are the unrighteous rich? Why are the celebrities and the people who live in sin? Why are they so rich? Why are we so poor? And what a great answer from Second Clement, this sermon from 1900 years ago, where he just goes, uh, because if you got rewarded really quickly, it would just look like you're a Christian for good business or something like that, or you would get distracted by that. So we get the reward afterwards. We suffer for an imperishable crown that we can't yet see. That's actually a really good answer. I've never really thought about the fact that if all of us Christians were rich, people would just become Christians to what? To get rich. So God doesn't make us all instantly rich when we become Christians. That's something we have to work at in life. 
There's just so many things like this. I was like, that's really powerful. And these are answers to questions people have right now, right? And this is something they were wrestling with even back then. And you can see how like, that's a really powerful thing from Second Clement. We have another letter that's really cool. This could be written, it's probably written around the year 120. So even before that speech was given to that Caesar that we talked about earlier, this is written by Polycarp. Now, pretty much every scholar accepts this as a real letter. They used to challenge it. Now they're like, no, we think it's probably real. Polycarp is amazing. He lived in a part of Asia, would become the Bishop of Smyrna and lived in the same region that John the Apostle lived in. Now, Polycarp never mentions that he learned from the apostles directly, but we only have a little tiny sliver of what he actually wrote. However, Arrhenius, who was the person who uh, was trained out under him, he says, hey, Polycarp knew the apostles and he specifically knew John. He lived in the same region. He was under their training. He was definitely somebody who knew John. And we also have other evidences that kind of point to like they would have crossed paths. And there's a lot of evidence that Polycarp is trained. He was old. He didn't die. He ends up getting martyred. If you want to go listen to Elisa's episode, she kind of goes into this in more detail. He's a really incredible, cool guy. Go to Martyrs and Missionaries and check out Polycarp if you haven't listened to it yet. Most people kind of know a little bit about him, but have you, you know, looked at his letter to the Philippians? And he's writing to the Philippians, those same Philippians from the church, you know, from your Bible, you know, uh, several decades later, but within a century later, he's writing to them, you know, with about 70 years later saying this, these things, brethren, I write to you concerning righteousness, not at my own instance, because, but because you invited me. For neither am I, nor is anyone like me, able to follow the wisdom of the blessed and glorious Paul, who, when he was with you in presence of the men that of that time, taught accurately and steadfastly the word of truth. And also, when he was absent, wrote letters to you, from the study of which you will be able to build yourselves up in the faith given to you. Now, just that right there. We have a letter from Polycarp, who knew John, affirming Paul's letters and saying, he's well beyond anything I can write. You know, that guy's amazing, but I'm just going to write to you anyway. If you're ever one of those people who says, like, you run into an atheist or somebody's, I don't, I don't know if Paul really wrote those things. How do we even know? Well, uh, Polycarp does. And he's saying, yeah, that happened. That's real. Those letters are definitely real. And they're far better than anything I can write. But I'm going to write to you anyway, Philippians, because I got a little something to say to you. And there's also, too, just the incredibleness that we just have these great, amazing people interacting with each other. Polycarp was trained by John, and he's writing to the Philippians who were trained by Paul. I mean, if you were alive, let's say it's 120. You get this letter from from uh, Polycarp, and you're 80 years old, and you've been living in Philippians the whole time. You go back, you're born in year 40. You probably saw Paul when he came to Philippians, Philippi, or at least you may see when the letters came in. You're familiar with people who knew Paul, right? That's how close together these things are. Now, he says, which is the mother of us all when faith follows and the love of God and Christ and neighbor goes before. For if one is in this company, he has fulfilled the command of righteousness for he who has love is far from all sin. But the beginning of all evils is the love of money. Knowing therefore that we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. Let us arm ourselves with the armor of righteousness and let us first of all teach ourselves to walk in the commandment of the Lord. Next, teach our wives to remain in the faith given to them and in love and purity, tenderly loving their, tenderly loving their husbands in all truth and loving all others equally in all chastity, and to educate their children in the fear of God. Let us teach the widows to be discreet in the faith of the Lord, praying ceaselessly for all men, being far from all slander, evil speaking, false witness, love of money, and all evil, knowing that they are at the altar of God, and that all offerings are tested, and that nothing escapes him of reasonings or thoughts, or of the secret things of the heart. And does that just sound so pure again, just what, what are the secret things they were teaching? Were they teaching get money from their people? Were they teaching get power, take over the Roman Empire? No, just 
Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Let's all follow the faith together. Remember those great, amazing writings by Paul. I know I can't hold a candle to that, but I'm still going to encourage you to do these things. And that's what Polycarp is writing to the same church of Philippi. Ignatius, who actually lived before him, is a little earlier than Polycarp. Might have been writing this letter in the 70s and 80s, maybe the 90s, right? Kind of incredible. He sends a letter to the Ephesians, the same Ephesians that Paul wrote a letter to on his way to Rome to be martyred. So actually, Ignatius is getting taken to Rome to be martyred. He's writing all these kind of last-minute letters. He doesn't know if he's going to get out of Rome. He actually writes a letter to the Romans. And he says, I hear the Christians are like, kind of come up with a breakout, break me out of jail plan. Don't do it. I'm ready to die for the faith. That's what happens. But in this letter to the Ephesians, he says, be careful then often to come together to give thanks to God and show his praise. For when you assemble frequently in the same place, the powers of Satan will be destroyed and the destruction of which he aims to go after your unity of faith will be gone. Nothing is more precious than peace by which all war, both in heaven and earth, is brought to an end. What an incredible thing. He's on his way to die. This guy who's living in those really early days and he's like, hey, keep assembling. Praise God. Give thanks to him. When you assemble, nothing Satan can do can get you. I'm on my way to Rome, probably going to get martyred. I'm going to stop the martyrs from doing that or from fighting, breaking me out. Don't, don't bring me out, Christians. I'm okay with being martyred. Nothing can stop God. Peace is worth it. Well, I just want an incredible thing. And again, what is the great secret Christian thing? Christians will take over the world, right? They'll be the number one faith in 1900 years. They'll, they'll, they'll be on every continent. They'll be everywhere around the world. What is their secret? Come together and give thanks. That's, that's what we believe. And it's just an incredible thing. We didn't take over the world by cunning and deceit, by stealing money, by power games or marketing or anything like that. We just did it by giving thanks and unifying together and living out the faith. And we still do that, don't we? When you gather together with the saints on Sunday, you're still doing that. Continuing, he actually adds some more here. Now, the more anyone sees the bishop keep silent, the more he should revere him. For we ought to receive everyone whom the master of the house sends to be over his household, as we should do that hint to him that sent him. It is manifest, therefore, that we should look upon the bishop as we would upon the Lord himself. And indeed, Onesimus himself greatly commends your good order and good order in God, that all li- you, all of you who live according to the truth, and that no sect has any t- sect has any dwelling place among you. Nor indeed do you hearken to anyone rather than to Jesus Christ speaking in truth. That Onesimus. Could be. There are groups of Christians out there who believe, and there are scholars who said it could be possible. It's the same Onesimus from Philemon's letter. That the rumor, that at least one version is that there's a bishop of uh, the Ephesians who's named Onesimus, and it could be the same one. We don't know. It's, it, probably, it probably isn't. I'll, I'll be more to say it more than likely isn't. But isn't that incredible that we're talking about we might actually know what happened to the Onesimus of Philemon? That we might know that, ah, wait a second. What happened to him? Did Philemon beat him and ignore Paul's letter? He, well, he might have become a bishop, actually. And this might be, you know, he might have become a bishop of the Ephesians, and Ignatius here could be acknowledging the same guy, right? Actually, even Clement could be getting acknowledged, too. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, was speaking of a Clement that was in Rome. It's, it's a stretch, but it technically could be the same guy. And that's kind of incredible stuff, right? If Paul died in 68, um, if, you know, Clement was 20. He could, could be the same guy later on when he was writing these. It's just incredible, these connections. Again, and there are, there are churches who will kind of say, yeah, in history, we say these are the same guys. We don't know. But isn't that insane that the possibility exists, that we have letters and work this close to what God was doing? It's just incredible. Uh, unbelievable, the things that we can see. He gives all these praises uh, to the Ephesians. And we have one more. Ignatius also writes a letter to Polycarp, the guy from earlier who wrote the letter to the Philippians who was trained by John, we had this letter from Ignatius who was writing to him as well. 
And it starts with Ignatius, also called Theophorus, to Polycarp, bishop of the Church of the Smyrnans, or rather, who was as his own bishop, God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, wishing abundance of happiness. Now, well, is Polycarp really the bishop of Smyrna? How do we know that's not made up? Well, because this other guy named Ignatius, who lived earlier than Polycarp, who they lived concurrently, but Ignatius was a little bit older, he wrote about him. And he wrote a letter to him. And he wrote a letter to these other churches as well. And we have these letters, and we see that there's a, a lot of evidence that the history says it's true. And he wrote that letter to Polycarp. And he said, having obtained good proof that my mind is fixed upon God as an immovable rock, I loudly glorify his name, that I have been thought worthy to behold his blameless face, which may I ever enjoy in God. I entreat you by the grace which you are to clothe to press forward in the cause and to exhort all that they may be saved. Maintain your position with all care, both in the flesh and spirit. Have a regard to preserve unity, and that rather than which is nothing is better. Bear with all, even as the Lord does with you. Support all in love, as you also do. Give yourself to prayer without ceasing. Implore additional understanding to what you already have. Be watchful, possessing a sleepless spirit. Speak to every man separately as God enables you. Bear the infirmities of us all as being a perfect athlete in the Christian life. Where the labor is great, the gain is all the more. Give you heed to the bishop, that God may also give heed to you. My soul be for theirs that are submissive to the bishop, to the presbyters, and to the deacons, and may my portion be along with them in God. Labor together with one another, strive in company together, run together, suffer together, sleep together, and await together as the stewards and associates and servants of God. Please you him under whom you fight, and from whom you receive your wages. Let none of you be found a deserter. Let your baptism endure as your arms, your faith as your helmet, your love as your spear, your patience as a complete panoply. Let your works be the charge assigned to you that you may receive a worthy pay. Be long-suffering, therefore, with one another in meekness as God is towards you. May I have joy for you forever. Ignatius will write this letter to Polycarp. They knew each other. They were friends. And, and Ignatius will die. Several decades later, Polycarp will also die. And these men died for the faith, but they wrote these incredibly encouraging things of what we Christians believe. And so when you hear people, you'll see a lot of apologetics, which will describe how we can know the Bible is legitimate, and we can. And I believe that every word of that scripture is inerrant, and there's a lot of great evidence for it. But something that often gets overlooked is that there's a lot of things that were written right after the Bible that supports the faith too. This wasn't made by Rome later on. This wasn't, these little arguments don't make any sense. We have letters from the guys within decades overlapping some of the lives of the apostles, and they are saying the same thing. Our hope is in Christ. Let's strive together after God. Let's come together and assemble. Let's give thanks and confess our sins. The hope we have is good. And if we die, so we die following the Lord. I think that's incredible. Hopefully you are encouraged to think that you are a part of a long and old church that has made mistakes. Yeah, yeah. People sometimes will focus on I think one of the reasons people don't pay attention to this stuff. Yeah, it's old writing. And, and yeah, yeah. Well, we have so many bad things in our history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Fine. Look at what we're talking about here, though. This is incredible. These Christians were faithful and they wrote about it and they wrote in such beautiful language, encouraging each other back and forth to the very churches that were in our Bibles. We're getting the follow-ups, right? Oh, Corinthians, they kind of got it together for a while, but it sounds like Clement had to give them what for. And oh, the Philippians are still being talked about by Polycarp. And oh, look, Ignatius is still writing the Ephesians. And the Ephesians, is their bishop possibly the same Onesimus? Of the, and is Clement the one? Oh my goodness, wow. Maybe they're not, but that's okay. Even if they are, they're not. That's the questions of what we're looking at, of how much evidence we have for our faith being very early on 
founded on the scriptures and founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So do not let people tell you, oh, there's not much evidence for Christianity. He's taking it on faith. No, no, no. We have a lot of very early documents and evidence that our faith is real. And not only that, but we have testimonies from the pagans, the pagan philosopher turned Christian, Aristides, and uh, Emperor Trajan and Pliny saying, these guys just get together and give thanks and call Jesus God. They're really not doing anything that bad. And yet, uh, that's what they do, though. What do we do with that? When they're just eating ordinary food and getting together. When you, when you, I mean, isn't that kind of crazy? When you go out to eat after church, when you go out to eat with some friends from church, you go out, have lunch, or you have a potluck, you go, that's an old tradition to eat lunch together after church. I don't know. I think this stuff is just really cool. It really encourages me. I think it's a great aspect of maybe apologetics that sometimes we don't remember to use. And even though, yeah, there's questions about these documents. Not everything these documents say is great. You're going to see things in there and you're going to go, oh, I don't know if I like that. But there's some really incredible stuff. And when it comes to talking about Jesus Christ and deity, they do some really incredible things. I think you can be encouraged by them. I hope you've been encouraged by these documents. I hope you you heard these stories and went, wow, I cannot believe that just, just it's just right there, right after the days of the apostles, we have all these things pointing to Christ as our Savior, all these documents pointing to Christ, all these people pointing to Christ, just just like you would expect. This is Troy, and this is Revive Thoughts. Mm-hmm.